Well, good morning, Bridge family. Everybody doing all right today? Nice. It's good to be in church with you today. If you are new today, let me add my welcome. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Bridge. I have the privilege of getting to share God's word with you today. So if you've got your Bible, meet me in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians 4. And I'm excited to just conclude this two-part series that we've been in over the last couple of weeks called Redesign Your Mind. Redesign Your Mind. And last week we kicked this off and we started in Philippians chapter 4 where we're going to spend most of our time or pretty much all of our time today. But I just want to take a moment and review a little bit of what we talked about last week because it's important that we catch up from where we were last week to understand what's going on this week. In Philippians 4 verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul gives instructions to the Philippian church about the things that they should be thinking on or meditating on, the the thoughts, the thought patterns that we should be dwelling upon so that God will start to make changes in our mind. I don't know if you know this or not, but when you came to Christ, God started doing a work in your heart, but he didn't want to just do a work in your heart. He wanted to start doing a major overhaul as well in your mind. And over time, I found that myself, that my thought patterns have changed as I've walked with God, and that's what we talked about. Now, when we started last week, we read from Philippians chapter 4, and one of the things we talked about was that if we just took this passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today, and we only read this Scripture all by itself, it would be really easy to think that Paul is saying, just think about positive things, and don't worry about negative things, and you'll have a very peaceful life and peaceful existence. But that's not very clear and congruent with everything else that Paul writes. In fact, we see that Paul's writing is not emphasizing just the power of positive thinking. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of health to be found there. But in order for God to change our minds, he wants to clear out the old stuff and bring in the new stuff. And so that's how we found ourselves last week in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 and verse 2 says, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked about these three words, conformed, transformed, and renewing. When we see conformed and transformed, in both of those words, the word formed is there. In other words, our minds are going to be formed into something throughout the course of our lives. Paul says, don't allow your mind to be conformed or formed with the thinking patterns of this world, but instead, let your mind be transformed, trans, uh, excuse me, formed against or formed across the patterns of how this world thinks. So how do we do that? He goes on and he says, by the renewing of your mind. And we went a little bit deeper and saw that that word renewing, in the original writings, what it really means is to allow God to renovate your mind. In other words, God doesn't want to just redecorate your mind. He wants to renovate your mind. And if you weren't here last week, I want to hammer this one home. God doesn't want to just repaint the walls of your mind. He might want to come in and and knock a few walls down. He might want to make some big changes so that he can start to make your mind into the mind of Christ and help you think the way that he thinks, not the way that the world thinks. So that's what we talked about last week. And now we can jump into Philippians chapter 4. And now that the old stuff is being cleared out, we can allow God to bring the new stuff in and look at the things that Paul encourages the Philippian church to meditate on. But before we do that, just a couple more quick things. After I got finished preaching last week, I was thinking a little bit about the message and how I would want to talk about this message today, and it kind of brought back this memory, this funny memory that I have in my mind. About three and a half years ago, the house that we were living in was about to go on the market. So I, was, uh, I had about three days to get the house as clean as I could possibly get it, before the photographers came to take pictures of the house and the listing went live online. Now, 
This was, you know, one of the more regretful things that I ever did in my life, and I'll tell you why. My wife was out of town during the entire time that I was home by myself to clean the house. And so I was given very clear instructions by the realtor. They said, listen, what you want to do is you want to remove as much clutter as you possibly can. You want to get as many things off the countertops, as many things off the floor. The parameters of the floor and the walls, clear them as much as you possibly can so that every single image is very clear and people can clearly see what the form and shape of the house really is. So let me tell you, I took three whole days from early morning to late at night, and I cleaned every inch of that house to the very best of my ability. And after I was finished and the pictures had been taken, my wife came home, and she walked in the front door with three kids and all kinds of luggage, and she walked in, and her jaw hit the floor, thinking, who are you and what have you done with my husband? I did not know that the house could be this clean. And the reason I say that this was a huge mistake is because, guys, you'll understand this. <laughs> I set my future self up for failure. <laughs> because now, every time I attempt to clean the room, the bathroom, the kitchen, the living room, I find that my level of cleanliness does not meet the pattern that I set three and a half years ago. And still to this day, I'm just doing my best to make her happy. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I got the best wife. But here's the reason why I'm saying this this morning. is because how many of you have ever been sent a link or you went online to look at the pictures of homes and when you look, went on there to look at the pictures of this home that you might even be interested in looking at and even purchasing, what you found was that the pictures were really unclear. They were really poor quality. Or you were looking at a picture that is marked as being the living room, but there are so many things, so much clutter, so much furniture, so much junk piled high in the living room that you can't even begin to wrap your mind around where the living room starts and the kitchen begins. You don't know where the living room is because you can't see the wall on either side or the wall in the back of the room. The pictures are so unclear and filled up with all kinds of clutter. Or have you ever looked at the images of this listing and found that the decor and the style is so old and so dated that you're not going to spend this much money to buy the house only to turn around and spend this much more money to update it? Now, I'm saying all this for this reason. I think that when God comes into our life, when we give our lives to Christ, God comes in with a design, a blueprint, a pattern of what he wants our thought processes and our minds to look like. But we are so accustomed to all the clutter that's been there for all those years, we have no idea the potential of what God wants to do here because all all we know is what's always been. All we know is the old style that needs updating. All we know is the clutter that's been piled up for years. We lost track of just how big that room is, just how much ability that room has, just how amazing this mind is that God gave us because it hasn't been formed to his pattern. It's been formed to the pattern of the world. And I bring that up today to remind you that when God goes to work in our lives and does this renovation in our minds, he wants to show us that his blueprint and his design is far better than ours. And if we'll allow God to do the renovation... He'll show us just how amazing these minds are that he gave us. Why? Because it's not being formed to the pattern of the world. It's being transformed, and he is renovating it. Now, one more quick reminder I want to tell you from Matthew chapter 12. We talked about this last week, but Jesus said in Matthew 12 that when an unclean spirit is cast out of somebody, the unclean spirit goes back to where it came from, and it goes back, and it gets seven of his friends who are even more evil than he. 
And they come back to try and re-inhabit that person. And what they find is that the house is clean and swept and well-kept. And they come in and this thing that is all cleaned out, they now begin to re-inhabit it if nobody takes control. And the situation is far worse than when there was just one spirit there. And the reason I tell you that story is just to simply remind you this. When God starts to renovate our minds, we are now responsible to be the doorkeepers and the gatekeepers of our eyes and our ears and our thoughts so that the wrong things don't come in and mess up God's design. Everybody with me this morning? All right, now we get to jump into Philippians chapter four because now that the renovation is happening and it's kind of getting cleared out and cleaned up and the thing is well kept and we're looking to God's design and God's blueprint, Paul says, here are the things that you need to focus on. Here are the things you need to think and meditate on. Look at Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now watch this, verse 9. Meditate on these things. Why? These things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do. And what will happen? And the God of peace will be with you. Can anybody lift a hand this morning and say, I need the peace of God to rule and reign in my mind and in my life. As pastor said, we are living in a crazy world. And if we don't allow God to renovate our minds, we might not ever find the peace that we are searching for in our hearts and in our minds. But if we want it, we got to let God do the renovation and then be the gatekeepers only thinking on the right things. Now, Paul mentions eight things here. And just to be honest, you guys know me. If I, if you said I'm gonna, if I told you I'm going to have eight things to talk about today, you'd be like, dear Lord, we're going to be here a while. So I'm going to talk about four or five of these things, depending on how much time we have, that Paul mentions. Because there's a lot of really interesting understanding to be found within these words, okay? So if you're taking notes this morning, let's start with this. First of all, number one, Paul says, meditate on things that are true. Everybody say true. Meditate on things that are true. And it's only fitting that Paul would start with truth because truth establishes a standard for everything else. It's only right that he would start there with truth. You see, deception is one of the devil's greatest tools, And if you don't know the truth, you'll fall for any old lie. So if we don't want to fall for lies and don't want to build our lives upon lies, then we need to know the truth. Well, what exactly is truth? It's so easy to see in the teaching and words of Jesus. John chapter 8. This is what Jesus himself said. Now, many of you are going to know a portion of this verse, but I want you to look at the whole thing and recognize that this isn't Jesus quoting somebody else. This is a famous quote from Jesus himself. John 8 and verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So he's saying if you hear my words, if you believe in them, if you abide in them, in other words, if you set up camp, if you choose to build your life, abide in my word, then you are my disciple. We're followers of Christ. Now look at verse 32. And you will know the truth. Everybody say truth. You will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There are so many of us that know that quote. We've heard it somewhere, but maybe we didn't know that Jesus was the one who said it first. Because the words of Jesus are the foundation for all truth. You see, truth is not relative, my friends. Truth is absolute. 
How did we reach a place where much, if not most, of the world sees truth as relative and not absolute? It happened because somewhere along the way, one generation failed to teach the next generation about the truth of God's word. In fact, we see in Romans 1 that they traded the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the creation rather than the creator. You see, freedom is found within the truth of God's word and lifestyle of following Christ. That's what Jesus just said. And while many people in the world might think that freedom is found outside, exploring outside of God's parameters, we know that true freedom is found within, the, within God's boundaries of blessing. The world will have you and your kids to believe that true freedom is when we get to go out and see what's on the other side of the boundaries. But see, parameters give us protection. And in a world that sees parameters as confinement, God calls his parameters protection. If we want our children and our children's children to know the blessing of God, we must teach them the boundaries of God. And the boundaries of his blessing are only found in one place. They are found within the pages of his word. Because when we know his word, we are his disciples. And we know the truth, and it is the truth that sets us free. Parents, can I just come alongside this real quick and say that if we want our kids to know true freedom, tell them it's not found outside of the boundaries of God's word. It's found within the boundaries of God's word because parameters give us protection. True freedom is found in God's word. Let's be people of the word. Let's meditate on truth. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, if you want to have the peace of God at work in your life, the God of peace be with you And the first thing we have to build our lives on, meditate on, and constantly be thinking about is the truth of God's word. Can I tell you something? If we don't build our lives on the truth of God's word, all other ground is shifting sand. And we cannot expect our house to stand if we're building it on the wrong foundation. And it's not a coincidence that Paul starts here with truth. Now, I want to add one other scripture in here really quickly. Another writing of Paul. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33. Before I read this verse, I want to say that the the actual context of this is Paul's talking about the gifts of the Spirit at work in the church in their local gathering. He's talking about order in the church, so if there are manifestation gifts of the Spirit happening, he's saying there's an order to it. And if we're going to attribute these gifts to God, look at what he says here next. He says in verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. What do we see in Philippians 4? That if we will think on these things, then the God of peace will be with us. And he affirms it again here in 1 Corinthians. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, this has to be said one more time. We are living in a very, very, very confused world. Confused about a whole lot of things. But when our lives are built on the truth of God's word, confusion goes away. Why? Because God is not the author of confusion. And if we ever find ourselves in a moment of confusion where we don't know what to do, Where's the first place we go back to? We go back to the word of God, the only sure thing that we can build our lives upon. If confusion comes in, no, it's not from God, it's from the devil because God is not the author of confusion. Go back to the word, find truth, for it will set you free and the God of peace will be with you, amen? Amen. But then Paul goes on. The second one is so cool. I'm really excited to unpack this one. He says, number two, meditate on things that are Noble. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, and the word noble is the word that's used right there, the second thing that we are to think on. 
In other translations, the word noble, it's the Greek word semnos, is translated honorable or reverent. Think about things that are noble. Think on things that are honorable. Think on things that are reverent. And in order to understand this word for noble the best, Paul actually uses it in two other places in the New Testament that are really interesting. It says in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 2, this word, uh, this Greek word semnos is used. And in both passages, he's speaking about the kind of character that pastors should look for in church leaders, people that are noble, honorable, or reverent. Now, I know before we go forward, there are some of you that are like, Zach, I'm not here this morning to be a leader. I'm just here to like, you know, get on with God, figure out life. Like, I'm not signing up to be a church leader. Don't worry, we're not going there just yet. But I want to make a couple of points to you really quick on what Paul is saying here. When you read the passages in context, Paul isn't saying when people come looking to be leaders, these are the characteristics to look for. Rather, he's saying when you go looking for leaders, here are the characteristics that you should find. In other words, look for the characteristic, don't look for the leader. Because you might see somebody that looks like a leader, but they don't have these characteristics growing on the inside of them. Instead, go looking for the people who are growing these things, and there they are. You've just found your leaders. It's an interesting thought that Paul gives here. In other words, these characteristics aren't just found in people who are looking to become leaders, but leaders are found from people who are growing these characteristics in their lives. You see, nobility and honorability isn't determined by how others see me. My nobility and my honorability, the way that others should revere me, is determined by how much I revere others and respect others. When we see this word reverence, the best English synonym we have for it is respect. And I'm saying all this to come around and finally say this. Paul here is really instructing the Philippian church that we should be meditating and thinking on things that are growing our reverence and growing our respect. Respect for who? For God. For people, for his church. In fact, I actually wrote a few down. Who, who should we have reverence for? What should we have reverence for? And if these are things that will help to grow our reverence, we should be meditating on them. We should have reverence for God. We should have reverence for God's house. Can I tell you something? Again, I'll say this to all the moms and dads because I'm one of you. We should absolutely be teaching our kids to revere and honor and have reverence for God, but we should still be teaching them to reverence God's house as well. It's a holy place. It's a sacred place. But with that said, we should also be teaching our kids to revere and honor their parents and their grandparents and all who are in authority, even if we don't agree with them. Wow, that's a big one. Think on these things, how to reverence the people that are in authority that we didn't vote for. That's huge. But Paul's saying, that's the kind of thinking I want you to step into. Even if you don't agree, there's reverence, there's honor, there's nobility toward these people. What about this? Teaching our kids to respect their elders. That one is disappearing quickly. Today, we're often teaching our kids to demean their elders. We need to be teaching our kids to honor and respect and show reverence to their elders. Come on, someone clap for that. Many of those are pretty obvious, but listen, it all culminates in this. We need to be teaching our kids, and we ourselves need to be meditating on thoughts, ideas, images, truths from God's word that are going to grow our reverence for everybody that we come into contact with. When we become irreverent or disrespectful, we devalue God, we devalue his house, and we devalue other people. 
I'll never forget, when I was 19, I did a discipleship training school, some of my very first ministry education. And I I felt so bad this week because I couldn't remember this gentleman's name, but we had a man that came to our class, and he taught us for a whole week in in one of our classes. And we were warned by our school leaders before this man came. They said, when he comes, if he calls on you or if you have a question about something he's teaching, you can raise your hand, he will call on you, but the moment he calls on you, you have to step up, you have to to stand to your feet, look him in the eye, and say, sir. And we were all a little bit intimidated. And he taught us very quickly. He said, listen, I'm so happy to be here with you guys. If anybody has a question or I call on you, you need to be prepared to stand up, look me dead in the eye, and say, sir, to answer the question, or sir, to ask the question. And I remember he did this, and it made us all a little bit tense. We were all a little bit uncomfortable. But what I noticed he was doing is that he was setting a level of respect for that room and that atmosphere. There's going to be reverence in this atmosphere. Not just for him, but for the things of God that we were studying. And what was interesting about it is in that moment, I kept thinking, wow, he's asking a lot of us to just show him so much respect. But throughout the course of the week, he had so much great teaching. And I'll never forget one day I stepped out of class And he was standing outside, and I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask him. And so I just walked up, unannounced, and I said, Sir, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And he looked back at me, and he said, Sure, with a smile on his face as he looked me back in the eye. And he heard out my questions, and he goes, Walk with me for a moment. And he walked with me for a second, and as we were walking, I remember he put his arm around me and just gave me his thoughts about these questions that I had asked. And what I saw in that moment was that he wasn't just asking me to respect him. He was showing me the same respect that he asked of me. And I'll tell you something, that showed me so much about his character. And we need to be the kind of Christians today that are teaching our kids, and we ourselves are setting an example of reverence, respect, and honor for those around us, because that's something that's dying in our world today. So if we can be believers who will set our minds on things that will grow our reverence, grow our respect for others, God's going to honor that, and his peace is going to be with us in those relationships. Amen? All right, we could spend more time there, but so much more that could be said about like showing respect to others and the people around us. But let's go on to the third thing. Paul says, number three, meditate on things that are just. Meditate on things that are just. Again, this is another one of those words that it's very easy for us to look at that through a 21st century lens. The word here for just is the word dikaios, which is most often translated not as just, But in scripture, it's most often translated as righteous or right. Think on things that aren't just just, but things that are righteous and are right. And if you just read the word just on the surface, it's easy to think that Paul is saying, meditate on justice or on things that are fair or even-handed. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in order for something or someone to be righteous in the sight of God, they have to first be justified by God. Scripture teaches that so clearly. In other words, if you are in Christ, God sees you as righteous because you have been justified by what Christ did for you on the cross. And because of this justification, I'm right now in the sight of God. So when Paul says to meditate on things that are just or right, what he is quite literally saying is fill my mind and focus on things that are right in the sight of God. Focus on things that God will look at and say, well, I approve. Go ahead. Let that hang on the wall. That's okay. That can remain there. I'm good with that being a part of the blueprint, that being a part of the plan. Because of this justification, I'm right in the sight of God. 
So when Paul says to meditate on these things, he's saying think about the things that God is right with, that are okay in his sight, that God will approve of. And I remember earlier this year, for many of you who have been around the bridge for a long time, Pastor Gary preached one of my favorite messages that I've ever heard him preach. I, I think it was one of my favorites because I've probably referred to it two or three times now. But he preached a message earlier this year, I think it was before Easter season, about the two sides of the cross. Man, that message has stuck with me because when we come to Christ, our life exists on the wrong side of the cross. We're sinful, we're unredeemed, maybe even unrepentant. We are lost in our own sinfulness. And then we come to terms with what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary, the price that he's paid. So what do we do? We surrender our life to his lordship and his rulership, and suddenly we are redeemed, we're forgiven, or as the scripture says, we are justified. And now I get on the right side of the cross, and that means that I'm in right standing with God. So here's the question I want to ask. If my life has changed, I used to live on the wrong side of the cross. I came to Jesus and he changed everything. And now I live on the right side of the cross. Why are the wrong things that used to fill my mind sometimes still taking up space when I'm on the right side of the cross? He says, think on things that are just. It's not just talking about an idea of justice. It's talking about things that have been justified in your life and only meditating on things that God is okay with dwelling there. Wow, what an amazing thought that is. If I'm in Christ and I've come to the cross of Calvary, my position before God is on the right side, the just side, the redeemed side of the cross. And when I crossed over to the right side of the cross, that means I left some old things behind me. And it makes me have to stop and ask the question, what things am I allowing to live in my mind while I'm on the right side of the cross that should have only been there when I was on the wrong side? of the cross. Is everybody with me this morning? Man, what a thought that is. Because the cross was my point of justification. The cross was my point where when I came through it, this thing that Jesus did for me, now I'm in right standing with God. So if I'm in right standing, can wrong things still live there? God says no. And Paul says meditate on things that are justified, that are okay, that are acceptable to God. So here's the question. What things am I allowing to come with me from the wrong side of the cross that are not right in the sight of God? And I'll give you a moment to think about that. What are the things I'm holding on to? What's the excess baggage that God didn't want me to bring to the other side of the cross that the devil wants to put in my mind? The wrong things can't live on the right side. And Paul says we've got to meditate or think on things that are just, things that are right in the sight of God. And he goes on from just, and he goes to the fourth thing. Number four, Paul says, we've got to meditate on things that are pure. Pure. Now, I think we all understand what the English definition of pure is. It's those things which are untarnished and unstained. We've got to meditate on things that are pure. But let me point you to another one of Paul's writings to understand what he's saying here. Our thoughts, our thought process. We have to make sure that nothing is going to tarnish this clean slate that God is now building and renovating in our minds. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 16, Paul writes something very familiar. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which is the kind of temple that you are. Now, here Paul famously tells us that our bodies, we literally are temples of the Holy Spirit, that God dwells within. 
But then he goes one step further and says that when the temple of God is defiled, God destroys the one who's defiled it. And we have to like think about that for a moment and kind of wrap our minds around what Paul is saying here. God destroys the one who defiles the temple. Well, I think first of all that Satan, the devil, would love to come in and defile these temples that God has given us. We all understand that. And because he wants to do that, if we will resist him, then God will destroy that enemy. But the thing we have to understand is that when we begin to take in impure things and receive impure things in a mind that God has made pure, what we're doing is we're positioning ourselves to a place where we are in strife with God. And God says, I'm not going to let that stand. Because sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And we said earlier that, you know, Romans chapter 1, they traded the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And I tell you what, sometimes as gatekeepers of our own minds, we have to be very careful allowing what comes in because we have to make the decision, do I accept this or do I reject this? And when it comes to this picture of meditating on things that are pure, if we in our Christian life choose to not meditate on things that are pure, God at some point says, okay, That's the thing that you choose to to meditate on. That's the thing that you've chosen to accept. I tried to renew your mind. I gave you a blank canvas. I gave you a clean slate, but you're the one who's making this choice. And in a sense, what this is really showing us is that we can almost misalign our life or our thinking with the way God wants us to think, even though we are in Christ. And what happens? These new minds that God gave us suddenly become impure. No, God says, I want you to meditate on things that are pure. Paul encourages the Philippian church, make sure that nothing that's tainted from the world, tainted by sin, tainted by other people's thinking, makes its way in here. If it gets to your mind and you know that it's not of God, listen, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, my friends, the Holy Spirit lives in here. And that means that when something meets us in the eye or meets us in the ears or starts to make its way into our minds, we have the Spirit of God sitting on the inside saying, you better reject this. He'll tell you. He'll talk to you. But we have to be the ones to choose what we are meditating on. And if we will allow the Holy Spirit to work, he will keep our minds and our conscience pure. Amen? Now, I want to take this one step further and just say this. We are responsible. We will answer to God for the things that we let in. All right, I don't want to go hard at the parents this morning, but I'm one of you, and I got little ones, okay? I'm no parenting expert. I'm figuring this out on the fly just like you are, okay? But can I just say, parents, this is so huge. We are responsible for what makes makes its way into the minds of our kids in our homes. And sometimes it's not just about what we allow them to see on their tablets or on the TV or on a computer. Sometimes it's what we choose to watch ourselves because they're watching what we're watching. They're hearing what we're hearing. And the picture that Paul paints here when he talks about you know, positioning ourselves and having strife with God because of what we allow to defile us, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to answer to God for allowing my kids to meditate on things that should have never made their way into their minds. And we have to make a choice. Just the other day, Ashley and I, you know, we were with one of our kids, and they had made a funny, cute little video on their tablet where they were singing a song that they had heard and they had learned. And it wasn't vulgar, it wasn't explicit or profane, but there was a couple of things that were just repeated in the song that were like, I don't want you thinking about that. I don't want that making its way into your mind because suddenly that tiny little seed goes down into the soil of their mind and pretty soon they start to understand and contemplate things that they should have never been meditating on in the first place. And guess what? It's not their fault. It's mine if I let it in. You guys are quiet. 
So if I'm responsible for what I let into my mind, I'm equally responsible for what I let into the minds of my kids. Parents, let's be people that guard the purity of our kids. Amen? All right, here's the last one. The team's going to come here in just a moment. We'll stop with this one today. But the fifth thing, Paul says, of the eight, and I chose just a few, but Paul says to meditate on things that are praiseworthy. This one was so good. Meditate on things that are praiseworthy, things that are commendable and worthy of praise, things that should be lauded or applauded. Paul says that we need to meditate on things that are commendable, things that are worthy of our praise. Now, I want you to stop and ask yourself the question, how much time do I spend doing exactly the opposite? Because we live in a world that is constantly consumed with negativity, criticism, and degradation. We degrade things and people around us all the time. We criticize and degrade the people in the world around us all the time. And it's easy to understand that being critical or degrading is unhealthy, But how many voices do we consume that are only contributing negativity to the conversation? Now, follow me for a minute here, church. I mean, think about this. We can look at elected officials and disagree with their policies, but we often don't stop there because we go one step further and attack their character and even sometimes judge their eternal souls. And guess what? I've been guilty of it. We can be Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, but still consume voices that are only tearing down other churches, other pastors, and other leaders over things that we simply see differently. And what do we do? We feed negativity, criticism, and degradation. We can do the same thing with our friends, with our neighbors, with our family members. Even though we might see things differently and live different kinds of lives than they do, we can agree to, we can agree to disagree face-to-face, but we verbally criticize them behind their back and express to others that what we think about them privately is totally different than what we would ever say to their face. When we do this, it isn't an indication of their faults. It's a huge indication of our own faults and our own lack of character. Paul says to meditate not on things that are critical or degrading or defamatory, but on things that are praiseworthy. Now let's talk about that word praise for a minute. It sounds funny to a lot of Christians to say that, you know, we're gonna praise people, praise people. I understand that that can be kind of a funny thought because praise is something that we tend to think of as something we only give to God. But really what Paul's saying here is only find the things to praise people for, only find the good, only find the positive, only find reasons to praise them, not to tear them down. Now here's the deal. As Christians, when we think about praise, the first thought we usually have is when we come into God's house with God's people and we praise the Lord in song. We did that this morning. My favorite time of the service is when we all come together and we praise the Lord in song. Have you noticed that when the words go up on the screen during our time of praise and worship, there are no words that are critical toward God? There are no words that question his ways. There are no words that question the truth of Scripture. There are no words that, you know, really disrespect God. No, they're praise toward God because God is good and his mercies endure forever. 
God has saved us and he's redeemed us. He's called us into his family. And see, that is a characteristic about the people of God that is unique to everybody else in the world. When we come into the family of God, he can fill our lives, fill our souls, fill our spirits and our minds with praise to the point that it drives out criticism and degradation and all kinds of negative talk about other people. And if I wouldn't say it about God, if my lips are supposed to be praise, praising lips to God, then why would critical words ever come out of the same mouth? Why? Because we now live on the right side of the cross. Paul says we've got to be kind of people that think on and meditate on things that are praiseworthy. We're looking for reasons to give praise to people, to give praise to God, not to criticize them or to pull them down, but to lift them up and build them up so that they can be everything that God has called them to be as well. Can we be that kind of people that we see beyond our own selfishness and we don't just praise God, but we praise people and we lift them up and we see the best in them and we find good reason to believe in them rather than tearing them down. That's who we're supposed to be. Paul says, meditate on this. Don't tear people down, but meditate on things that are gonna build them up because it's, ple it's pleasing and praising to God. You know, this morning you might be here and you hear all this and it's like, man, I live in a world that's full of criticism. It's full of negativity. Or maybe you even look at the company you keep in your own life and you think, wow, it's like my whole life just seems to be surrounded by criticism, negativity, degradation. And it's like there's constant negative all the time. Last week we talked about renovation. And I know that there were many, many people across this church and we just honestly humbled ourselves before God and said, God, I need you to come in. And I don't need you to repaint the walls. I need you to tear some down. I need you to change my way of thinking. But now that God has cleaned all that stuff out, it's up to us to start meditating on the right things that are a part of his blueprint and his design. And if we will be those people, God will do great things in our lives and through our lives to the glory of God here on earth and forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. We're going to be done this morning in just a couple of moments, but I want to ask if you would bow your heads with me. Because in this moment, we're going to do something that we do in all of our services. And in fact, this is a holy moment, and it really calls back this word reverence. Because there's a moment in our service where we give everybody the opportunity just to ask the question, where am I at when it comes to a relationship with God? And I want to say this to every believer in the house. There was a time in all of our lives where we were the ones who were on the wrong side of the cross. And in this moment when we give people the opportunity to come to the cross, give their heart and their lives to Christ, really it's an opportunity to join us and the family of God on the right side of the cross. And that's why we have reverence and respect for this moment. So we're going to conclude in just a moment, but while everybody's seated until the conclusion of service, I want to ask you, where are you at with God today? If you say, Zach, I don't know God. I'd like to believe that he's real. I want to tell you this morning that we come into a relationship to, with God by saying yes to Jesus, his son, the sinless, spotless son of God who lived a perfect, sinless life here on earth and went to the cross and died a death that we deserve for our sin. Scripture says the beauty of it is that his death was full payment for our sin, but he didn't just die. Three days later, God raised him from the dead and conquered death so that we could all have new life. But it all begins with us saying yes to what Jesus did for us. I'm going to pray a prayer here in just a moment, and I want to tell you it's not about the magic words of a prayer. It's about the decision that each one of us makes in our heart to accept what Jesus did for us and allow him to be the Lord of our life. 
Jesus is Lord and Savior whether we choose to allow him to be or not. But when we choose to let him come in and be our Lord and be our Savior, we come into relationship with him and he shows us all the best things that he has for us in this life before he one day welcomes us into eternity. I'm gonna pray a prayer right now. And today, if you wanna commit your life to Christ, whether it's for the first time or the fifth time, I wanna welcome you. Make these words your own. In fact, find words of your own just to commit your life to Christ as we pray together right now. Jesus, I thank you for going to the cross for me. I believe that your death was full payment for all of my sin. So today I receive that sacrifice into my life. I choose to make you my savior and I want you to become the Lord of my life. Take the reins, take the wheel of my life and lead me forward because your design is better than mine. God, I choose you today. I will follow you in this life until the day that I see you face to face in eternity. Thank you for receiving me into your family. I'm grateful for all you have done for me. I choose you today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, okay, listen, last thing before we go today. If you made a decision or a recommitment, you wanna give your life to Christ today, you made that decision, we wanna put a free gift in your hands to help you start your journey of faith. Right after service, we're gonna have some prayer teams right down here near the front of the platform. Just walk up to one of our prayer teams, let them know you made a decision to follow Jesus, and they'll give you this little book called The Next Seven Days. It's just a simple tool to help you get started in your walk with God. That's the easiest way to get it. You might be here today and you just want someone to pray with you, agree with you, pray a prayer of faith over whatever you're dealing with. Please, come see one of our prayer teams. That's why they are here. But if you need to go quickly at the end of service, you can also get one by stopping by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors before you exit the building. We would love to help you get started walking with God. Bridge family, can we put our hands together and welcome people into God's family today? Hey, we love you guys. Thank you so, so much for being in church today. If you want to get involved in our Thanksgiving food drive, go to the community care table out in the foyer. We'll give you all the instructions. We love you. Have a great Sunday and an awesome week. God bless you.